4: That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
1: This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, we take to the air on an airline you've probably never heard of, let alone flown. But it's been around for about eight years. And it flies between underserved and lesser-known airports in the U.S. It's called Surf Air. We flew it from Hawthorne, California to Santa Barbara, California. Along the way, we spoke with Gary Leff, founder of ViewFromTheWing.com, on the latest insidious fees some airlines are charging. To Ann Hood, author of Fly Girl, a very entertaining memoir of her stewardess, or should I say, flight attendant days. And then airline veteran fred reed he's been an executive of delta with virgin america among others and he gives us his update on airlines around the world as well as surf air itself first up gary leff
3: okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Always fun
0: to talk to you, Gary. But the la- the latest stuff that you've been writing about, I mean, we're back to nickel and diming again uh, at the airlines. What is this $27 technology fee that's being charged on certain tickets.
1: Well, I got to tell you, $27 to pay for an airline's technology, that's what the fare is supposed to be for. They use their revenue, they invest it, right? Well, Breeze Airways is adding technology uh, fee to their airfares. And the idea there is you're like paying for their technology, which is about the craziest thing I've ever heard. It reminds me of Spirit Airlines and Frontier that charge extra for an online booking fee. Most airlines wanted you to book online, right? Because it's cheaper for them. You know, they want to, they used to offer bonuses to get you to do it. And the crazy thing is that they will take off that fee if you buy it in person at the airport. Well, it turns out that Breeze Airways will take off their technology fee from the ticket if you buy the ticket at the airport. Gosh, isn't this weird,
0: right? Well, there's a logical. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, it's counterintuitive. I mean, the idea that they want to they want to give you to steer you to buy the ticket online is because they don't want to pay a human being to spend the time and money to process the ticket. So then, why would they charge you to do it for less?
1: Well, that's the that's the crazy world that we live in because of the tax code. So it turns out that, you know, they're publishing the fee as part of the fare. When you buy the fare, it's displayed. It's not an add-on. They're just calling part of the fare a fee. Now, in order, and the reason why it's better for an airline to call something a fee is because on a domestic ticket, it's not subject to the seven and a half percent excise tax that goes to the federal government. So it's tax arbitrage. They can move it out of the fare into the fee and then they pocket that extra seven and a half percent. Okay, now, so now, is,
0: so wait a minute. So I'm, I'm beginning to figure this out. That means I can now understand why Spirit would offer $2 tickets and a $50 bag fee.
1: Exactly. So all of that money is not subject to tax that the airlines that have the higher fares are paying on their, uh, you know, on the full amount of the fare. So this becomes really interesting. They say in the Department of Transportation says in order to call it a fee and not part of the fare, it has to be optional. There has to be a way to avoid it. So they say, okay, we're going to call much of the ticket cost fees and you can avoid those if you go to the airport and buy the ticket. Now, like, nobody does that, right? Because you've got the time of going to the airport, maybe miles on your car, maybe you have to park, and then you stand in line. Although stand in line, maybe that's not so different than waiting on hold on the phone. Um, and then, you know, so the, the cost to you in non-monetary terms is greater to buy the ticket at the airport. Well, not, but not, it's a not, way not,
0: yeah, not only that, I mean, that's just to buy the ticket at the airport. You're not buying the ticket on the day that you're flying. You're buying Exactly. So it's, it's a double negative
1: you got to go to the airport twice, but it's the way that you can avoid the fee so it meets the rules set out by the Department of Transportation to call it a fee, and therefore the federal government doesn't consider it taxable. And what this is allowing Breeze Airways to do is pocket about two extra dollars that doesn't go to the federal government on every ticket that they sell.
0: And add that up by the number of people they're flying, and that's why you understand why airlines make more money on ancillary fees than they sometimes do on the fares that they're officially charging. That bingo! Wow!
1: And of course, we know why they love bag fees so much. And it's even if uh, the, the the amount that you spend with them is the same, whether it's part of the ticket or not. If they're charging across airlines, so about a billion dollars in bag fees. Take seven and a half percent of that, and that's. Uh, big money in tax savings. So it be, it, anytime you've got these really weird challenges of how can this possibly make sense, you figure that it's got to be uh, either taxes are a part of it or some kind of price discrimination where different passengers are willing to pay different amounts.
0: And on the hotel side, that explains the resort fee.
1: Well, see, there's a different fella, right? <laughs> because yeah. um, you're, you're sort of right in that they avoid usually paying commission on those resort fees to the mostly the online travel agencies, it's not part of the the rate, and so they you know they do have that savings. It's not then there's different jurisdictions some of them will tax the resort fee and some of them won't um, but there it's even a little bit more misleading because it's usually added on to the initial price that you see at least with the airlines when you see the fare it includes those the 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 technology fee or the online uh, booking fee so
0: uh, hotels are kind of worse with this oh boy some interesting numbers to share with you all we all you know started this year by saying we are going to travel no matter what at any cost emphasis on the word words at any cost. And we're going to we're gonna pay whatever the price is. We weren't very price sensitive when we traveled this summer. And now those credit card statements are coming in. Bingo. Everybody's looking at their statement, having a little sticker shock saying, I paid what for this this summer? And look at the numbers. In the last month, credit card balances in this country went up $48 billion. And that's just in, that's the largest jump in 20 years. But here's the other interesting thing. And Gary writes about this all the time. We opened in the last quarter $200 And 33 million new credit card accounts. That's the largest increase since 2008. And interestingly enough, maybe not so much ironic, what was 2008? That was the economic debacle. So there may be a cause and effect here between, you know, our worrying about being able to pay for stuff and incurring new debt. But that's a lot of new credit cards, Gary.
1: Well, that sure is. And, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people weren't applying for credit cards. And a lot of credit card companies were a little bit reluctant to be spending much marketing to acquire new customers because they weren't sure. Like who was gonna have a job? Who was gonna be able to pay back debt? They certainly didn't want to extend credit cards to small business. And you know, things worked out a lot better than they expected and the Federal Reserve kept interest rates low. And then but what so what happened was people were canceling credit cards. They didn't want to pay the annual fees, especially you know, airline cards, hotel cards that often have these annual fees attached and they weren't traveling, they weren't thinking about travel. And then all of a sudden they're traveling again, they want their credit cards back. The credit card companies had smaller card portfolios, they hadn't been growing them, but they had been losing customers, they needed to desperately Ad customers. They've been throwing miles at people. to you know We've seen all these 100,000 mile bonuses, right? I've even seen recently 150,000 on a United Small Business credit card. We've seen some bigger ones on some big American Express cards. And they're giving out all these points because they're desperately trying to sign up customers to make up for all that lost time during the pandemic. So combine the aggressive marketing with the card companies, higher costs all around that people are you know, looking to finance. It always amazes me how much uh, of trips are finance the the big business of you know financing vacation packages you know it's something uh, like you know, it's certainly more than one in eight vacation packages is bought on uh, on credit not through a credit card but the financing that's offered through checkout when you're buying it at say united vacations or American vacation um so you know we're we're a country that finances our leisure uh, and <laughs> and when the prices goes up <laughs> we, we were all gonna travel this summer and and now it's coming back to us
0: it is in fact there's another company out there We've had we've talked about them on the air before, and I'm seeing them everywhere now. It's something called Uplift, and so if you if you book on United Airlines and then it comes time to pay, you have an option now to go to Uplift, which basically is the the layaway plan. So you'll you know you buy a three thousand dollar trip, and it's only going to cost you 130 bucks a month. You're fine. You're doing it on the on the layaway
1: plan. And this is a really interesting question: what's going to happen with a lot of these companies? You know, recently I was buying a, a, a buying shampoo, and I was offered buy now, pay later, right? To to finance my shampoo, and so it's everywhere you buy things even sometimes in person but all over the internet and we don't have a lot there's not a lot of there's not a lot of credit checking going on right and so we're gonna we're going to see what happens if we do enter a recession whether some of these companies are quite as uh, as savvy as they think they are and whether people are paying this stuff back
0: so i can see something in about two years uh, uh, involving your shampoo which will be <laughs> financial collapse tricked Tripped, accelerated by one <laughs> bottle of shampoo, financed. Well, at the,
1: yeah, at, at the point where people are financing their shampoo, I, I don't really think if you're, you know, you, you got to go through extra steps to, 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 to buy it on, credits through the site. If you're buying a bottle of shampoo on credit, I just don't know the odds that you're actually going to pay that back.
0: So you better wash your hair quickly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. They're going to come repossess my shampoo.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because when I look at all the offers I'm getting, and I'm, I'm getting probably three to four different credit card offers a week, I actually just did one. I actually went and did one because it seemed to make sense. I did it with Southwest because of that companion pass. So what I did is I, I applied for a Southwest Airlines credit card. I got something like 70000 or 80000 Thousand points. And then as long as I spend, I think like three or $4,000 more in the next three or four months, then they throw in another 20,000 bonus points. And all of a sudden I get a companion pass for the next year, which means I can take anybody I want with me basically for free. You just pay the taxes, Right.
1: Yeah. So you designate, so when you earn 125,000 points with Southwest from flying, from credit cards, including the credit card bonuses, booking hotels with them, uh, if you earn 125,000 of their points in a year, you earn that companion pass for the rest of that year and through the end of the following year. And you designate a companion, which you can change a couple times during the year, by the way, uh, but that designated companion can travel with you. Whether you're buying your ticket on points or cash, any, as long as there's a, Seat for sale on that plane you can add that companion and pay the pay the security tax and you know I've got one of these and I earned it right at the, you know early January of this year so that it's valid for all of this year and all of next year uh, basically getting two years for the you know price of one as it were uh, and my wife's my companion and I use points for uh, for my daughter and I usually pay for my own so that I can keep my Southwest uh, you know, A status.
0: <laughs> my thanks to Gary. A lot of people like to talk about the golden age of aviation. I honestly don't know what that means anymore, but Ann Hood might have a clue. She's the author of Fly Girl, a great personal history of at least her golden age of aviation. Ann, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Peter. You know, it, it, you, know you work for TWA, and I remember, I, mean, I grew up with, with TWA, with, with, with my parents telling me stories about flying the old Constellation, Uh, I remember Mm -hmm. flying the very first TWA 747. Uh, Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And I remember uh, in those days, I can even tell you, this is how crazy I am, I can still tell you TWA flight numbers, right? There was TWA flight… Oh, wow. Absolutely. TWA flight 760 that went from LA to London, and then the one that I always used to laugh about, TWA flight 849 that went from JFK to LAX because 849 started in Europe. And it never was on time, so within TWA, uh, we, we always called it TWA Late Forty Nine. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it's true, but I, I, and, and it, I look. I remember flying the TWA flights on the old seven forty seven SP when they were doing nonstops from Cairo to New York. I mean, what? oh,
4: I flew those, Peter. I'm sure I was your flight attendant. That was one of my favorite trips.
0: Of course. In fact, I'll give you a little. Uh, uh, this is really inside baseball but it was through all the TWA flight attendants they turned me on in the covered bazaar in Cairo to a place called Saeed's, where all the TWA women went to get their cartouches. Exactly.
4: Um, My mother passed away a few years ago and she still was wearing her cartouche that I bought her in 1980 or
0: something. Oh yeah, and when you went into that store, every business card from every TWA flight attendant, purser, and captain was in the display case. (laughs) I remember
4: that store. Oh my goodness, this is so
0: great! I know memory
4: lane for sure. But
0: you know, the, the, the great thing. <laughs> I, ab- but the great thing about your book, which of course is called Fly Girl, is it really it, it encapsulates. Uh, it really was the golden age. Um, it really was a oh time. Boy, was it? it really was, and it was the romance of flying. I mean, look, I'm a I'm a big sentimentalist, but it was the romance of flying. It's when <laughs> it's when people actually got excited about taking the trip. It's where I dressed yeah, instead up instead of dreading it. Yes. instead of dreading it, right? <laughs> I mean, and I dressed up. Oh. You know. And it, it, oh you, yeah. You know, it, it was something. Now, you know, we can we can fantasize about great airline food, but the reality was airline food was never great. But it was a time mm-hmm. when people actually, you know, appreciated the, the food that they got. There, there was some care and consideration that went into it, but. What's interesting well, about- I've
4: been on flights now where i would I would do anything for a chicken or beef because <laughs> <laughs> you're so hungry
0: <laughs> exactly but in 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 writing this book and, and it's a wonderful memoir, but what is it that you learned about about life at thirty five thousand feet?
4: Wow, the short answer is everything you know I was twenty one we're twenty one years old when I got hired by twa nineteen seventy eight Um, A small-town girl, I had traveled very little, you know, trips with my girlfriends or whatever, um, and wanted to see the world, but I was very naive. uh, And TWA gave me independence, confidence, the ability to walk into any room or any place in the world and feel at home, and to make others feel at home, too. I, I really think that who I am today is because of what TWA offered with that job. It, it just empowered me,
0: and of course, towards the end of uh, of the airline's life, TWA took on a new meaning for me. It, it stood for "try walking across." Um, oh, oh,
4: or like someone said to me once, "That was awful." <laughs> TWA,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I still have I still have my model of the TWA constellation. I still have my model of the TWA seven forty seven, and of course, uh, some of the some of the more tragic stories. Uh, you know, the, the TWA flight that was hijacked um, and and uh, where, the, where the Navy diver was killed in Beirut. Uh, that, was, yeah. that was Captain yeah. John Testrake and Uli Derrickson. The, the, the great story in that was, uh, was what happened in the cockpit that day uh, on the ground in Lebanon uh, when they needed fuel and because the hijackers wanted to keep mm. going. There they were on, on the tarmac in Beirut, having shuttled back and forth. Hijackers had guns to everybody's heads but the plane needed fuel and they ordered fuel. But the folks who ran the fuel operation in Beirut said, well, who's gonna pay for it? And the hijackers would say, we're gonna kill people if you don't give us fuel. And the flight attendant, Uli Derrickson, noticed that the fuel truck had Shell oil on it. And she had a Shell credit card that she used to fill her own tank. And she gave him her credit card. And you know, the fuel was like $9,000. Um, <laughs> they honored the they honored the credit card, and that, that's what happened. The the crazy oh, story. She was brave. The crazy story that happened to me. I'll give you my involvement in that story. Quite tangential. Uh, I was. Uh, I had flown to London to get to Athens, uh, to get on a cruise ship to do a story, and British Airways mm. British Airways lost my bags, and they uh, and as we were leaving, and I had no I had no luggage. They, they gave a, a a telex in those days to me saying we mm-hmm. found your bag we're foot we're putting it on the first flight uh to Athens oh. well the first flight to Athens was the TWA plane that got hijacked and oh my goodness. I I never I look my bag on the ground with with the with the hijackers with a bag tag that said Greenberg that bag wasn't coming back. Oh. <laughs>
4: Oh, well, you know, I have a story, too, about that flight. I was flying that flight pattern a day later. Wow. So I, yeah, so I landed at Kennedy. I got back home, and I called my parents to say, hey, I'm back from my flight. And my mother burst into tears. They didn't know which day I was doing the pattern and didn't know if I was on that flight.
0: Oof, I get it. Yeah. Too close. Too close. Way too close. But, you know, you saw things from a different perspective. Uh, you saw human behavior. You know, people do stranger yes. things when they're at 35,000 feet than they do on the ground. And not all of it is alcohol-related. Um, yeah. <laughs> although some of it is. <laughs> but so I was going to say, well, not all. <laughs> but you also got to see the world. And you got to see the world. Oh, you know, the, the, when we hear the word layover, it suddenly it doesn't do justice to what smart flight crews do. Because they know how to hit the ground running because they only have a limited time. Mm-hmm. They know, mm-hmm. you know where to eat. No doubt about it. You know where to eat. That's with, right. Where the portions are generous and the food isn't overly expensive. You know where to shop. You know where to get a button fixed in, you know, in Brazil. And, That's right. <laughs> and in fact, I did a, 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 a book a couple of years ago called Flight Crew Confidential, which which basically my interviews with flight crews from all over the world as to their tips for each city about where they go and what they do uh, not to promote anything but to give people the inside tips on hey i know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy and that's right uh, right i mean you...
4: right absolutely I, mean, I need a copy of that book <laughs> that's a great idea
0: i will i will get it to you but the good news is great. when you look back at your career you mm-hmm. wouldn't you probably wouldn't have had it any other way
4: you bet i wouldn't change one thing oh, you know here i am in amsterdam i haven't been here since i flew here as with pwa and every now and then i turn a corner you know i'm i'm I've never really been that good at this city, the rings and the canals, but every now and then I turn a corner and I kind of stop and I can almost see my younger self going to that store that we all knew to go to or going to get those pancakes where we used to go to get them. It's just, you know, I feel like my fingerprints are here Well, and in many cities.
0: Well, <laughs> in as, many long, cities. well as long as there are no police reports. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not saying, <laughs> <laughs> but Truly, there was romance in the air, wasn't there?
4: Oh boy you know, just when you were saying about the 747s that you the 747s, you remember? I kind of got goosebumps, and I know that sounds over the top. Those planes were beautiful. They were so beautiful. And walking down those spiral, that spiral staircase, you know, from the lounge into first class in my beautiful Ralph Lauren uniform with a tray of cocktails, it was really something.
0: Okay, I have to ask an indelicate question. Where is that uniform? Where is that uniform? And can you still fit into it?
4: (laughs) Luckily, I don't know because I I don't know what happened to it. I swear I brought it to my parents' house because I had a little apartment in New York City, and I thought I'd put it in a very specific place. But when we sold the house, that uniform was not there. All that remained, and I'm happy to to say that I have it, is my name tag, TWA Ann Hood. Uh, and sometimes I put it on when I make dinner at home just for that whole type
0: <laughs> My thanks to Ann. It's a new model of aviation. It started as a membership flying club called Surf Air. For $2,000 a month, unlimited flying on their route system throughout California and other parts of the West. During the pandemic, it grew to include charter services. And now, they're at the forefront of introducing hybrid electric flights. Fred Reed, an aviation veteran, weighs in on the surf air concept and what it means for about 5,000 airports around the U.S.
4: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
0: Fred, thank you for joining us. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. Let's talk about since you've had such a great, you know, run in the airline business. I want to go back to, you know, w- where we've been in the last 20 years, if you will, because you and I go back to the days when, especially in the in the 90s, when so many new airlines started in the late 80s as well. Most of them failed. You know, we've had more than 150 bankruptcies since uh, uh, since t- since deregulation back in 1978. And what I used to say was. Deregulation was great for the consumer, but it also allowed airline management without any kind of government control to show you, in many cases, how bad they could be. You know, companies were undercapitalized. They tried to fly everywhere. I remember back in 1978, almost immediately after deregulation was announced, where Harding, Lawrence, at Braniff decided to, to, to inaugurate like 45 routes in one day. I mean, it was it was nuts, right? It was it was cra- It was unsupportable. Fun times, unless you were a shareholder,
3: right? <laughs> well, it wasn't all that fun for everybody, especially those who made the wrong bets. But I remember that 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 period well. Exactly, and the. Uh, And the problem,
0: of course, is that, uh, you know, a lot of people saw a lot of planes parked in the desert, and they're still out there today. You can still see in Palm, you know, out in Palm Desert, some of the old Braniff planes. It's it's wild, because they were always, you can't miss them, because they were painted in all those crazy colors. But as we entered into the year, you know, the the century, the new century, uh, it's a question of, did any of the airlines learn their lessons about, you know, the mistakes not to make?
3: Well, Yes, I I think the days of unbridled expansion and that you basically thought you could uh, remove a competitor from the playing field with overcapacity and low and, and unaffordably low prices. You know, I think that lesson has been largely learned. Uh, there was a big shock to the system, of birth with 9-11 um, toward the end of t- 2001. Uh, that resulted in a lot of consolidation, which ultimately was healthy. So I think that in, in terms of rationality and 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 shareholder awareness, the industry net-net has improved.
0: You know, I go back to those days with you when a new airline would start they didn't really have frequency. They didn't have a lot of planes. All they really had was low fares, and they would introduce these great low fares. And then, of course, the the legacy carriers will say, well, you know what? Let's, let's approach this by doing this. We can lose money longer than they can, so we'll match those fares, and then they'll just go out of business, which in many cases is exactly what happened, but the major carriers didn't make a lot of money either. Uh, that's true. Yeah. And so now- we have a situation where we've seen so much consolidation over the past 25 years. The most recent consolidation that I remember was actually your, you know, your airline, Virgin America, with Alaska. Uh, that's about the most recent big consolidation I've seen. Is there any consolidation left to be
3: had? Well, there's a lot of speculation about that. The question is, do the Southwests and the Jet Blues and the uh, 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 and 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 the Alaskas do they want to strive to become the size uh, of the big three and the question there is i'm not sure that's wise uh you know volume and scale only brings uh, so much to the party so of course we have uh, a, a pending attempt now uh, with jet blue uh and spirit uh, that should be interesting It's a, they're pretty different brands but the, even that combination uh, produces, uh, I think it's uh, number five in the country in terms of capacity. But after the big three, the size and scope uh, tends to drop off.
0: You know, you mentioned JetBlue and and the and the recent attempt, which is still going through the process of uh, of merging w- or buying Spirit. Uh, you know, there are those who argue that you know you have two different airlines, two very different cultures, and at the end of the day. You know, the JetBlue play is probably about they just want the planes to be able to scale.
3: I, I I'm not going to read into their motives, but certainly there is some room for scale uh, uh, on the on the behalf of of those airlines. Particularly, I'd say a, a JetBlue and Alaska, uh, Frontier is an outlier, uh, not in a bad way, but you know they they, they made the attempted at consolidation play and that didn't work out. Uh, so it remains to be seen. I don't think it. It's an imperative, Peter. I think these companies that we're mentioning uh, all have a place in the world uh, indefinitely. So uh, I don't see that as the same imperative as it used to be.
0: And so bottom line is we may have seen as much as we're going to see in terms of consolidation. Uh, at least in the, in the marketplace in America, you have some new airlines. Of course, you've got Breeze, David Nilman's new carrier. Of course, David, of course, coming from first Southwest, and then he was the founder of JetBlue. Then he went down to South America and started Azul, did very well there. And now he's back in the U.S. with Breeze. Uh, you also have Avello, started by a
3: former United Airlines executive. So the game isn't over just yet, is it? No, no. You know, there's always room for innovation. And I think the the the, the that both Avello and Breeze, for slightly different reasons, have a lot of promise. Uh Breeze is going to be the showcase for the Airbus A220, which is uh, the, the plane that was started by Bombardier as the C-Series. That's a really, really good plane. Now, mind you, all the planes these days, which is part of this conversation, um, are better versions of what was coming out 20, 30, even
2: 40 exactly. years
0: ago. That doesn't hey
3: Fred- make it bad.
0: No, it doesn't make it bad. We were just talking about the new entrants, the the, uh, the the Breezes and the Avellos and different business model, right, Fred? They're not necessarily flying. Well, not necessarily, not necessarily. They're not flying through airline hubs. They're going through, you know, they're just flying from A to B without stopping in or A to C without stopping in B through markets that have, ne- have not necessarily been well served at a time, by the way, when the legacy carriers are canceling service. To so many secondary and tertiary cities. United's dropped 25 cities from their routes. Americans pulled out of five or six. Delta's pulled out of seven or eight. By the time this show airs, Toledo, Ohio will probably be without all air service from the legacy carriers, American United and Delta. Uh, you'll see Ithaca, New York lose service, uh, Eureka, California, Dubuque, Iowa, Moline, Illinois, Islip, New York, and many others. Uh, does that create an opportunity? For other carriers
3: oh it definitely creates an opportunity i mean for years uh you know the hub and spoke has has, has served its purpose and it's still serving its purpose i think that will be the predominant way of uh, transport for the large uh, global carriers but with that said, there's a whole raft, literally hundreds, if not thousands of city pairs, uh, Peter, that are <clears throat> right below the radar of what the, uh, uh, the the big guys can afford. And that opens up opportunities for Avello, for Breeze, and uh, for Surf Air mobility. Well, let's talk about that now. Where does Surf Air fit into all of this? Because
0: your experience in the airline business was definitely hub and spoke your your of, uh, history in the business was legacy major carriers or or very strong secondary carriers where does surf air fit in is it changing the model
3: well i think it's <clears throat> yes in a sense yes the this this is the first airline uh, aviation project i can remember in a while where we're really not looking to butt heads uh, or lock horns with any other airlines at all in fact what we're trying to do, and I think it will succeed, is to convert drivers to uh, air service when we reach scale, and especially when we connect city pairs that have no other uh, direct air service at all, uh, and do it with a, a, a high frequency. Frequency is a huge factor here, and you just cannot take thousands of these city pairs and put a 737 or an A320 on them uh, and and make money. Or maybe you could do it once a day, whereas if you have a competitor with a smaller plane who's going to fly five, eight, 12 times a day, that itself is a key advantage. So no, we're not really trying to to take share from others. Yes, we are trying to move some traffic off the roads, which everybody agrees is, is, is a good idea. So that's how I would characterize it.
0: And then, of course, it's the city pairs that you're choosing, right? You're not flying LAX. You're not anywhere near LAX. You're flying out of Hawthorne. You're not going to San Francisco. You're going to San Carlos. Uh, And those cities, if if you just look at the map, seem to make sense if if you're looking for proximity.
3: Oh, absolutely. I call this um, zip code to zip code airline planning, and the basis That we have in terms of forecasting tools is also very, very different uh, from the so-called MIDT data that airlines have historically used. That data says this this is how many people fly between two points, period, all around the world. That's great. But what we've now been able to capture is cell phone pings and, uh, and we're interested in the way people move, not the way people fly, not the way people walk or take rideshare, but the way people move. Period, and within that, we see uh, literally hundreds and, and more in, over time of city pairs that have no nonstop service that are are valuable uh, to the customers, and will make a big difference to the economic fortunes of the uh, cities affected. I, I've had a lot of experience putting new service in and even building up hubs, and the um, the benefit it brings to the community is huge.
0: It is, and of course, when you come up with those city pairs, I mean you know, silly me, I never would have picked Hawthorne to San
3: Carlos. (laughs) It is counterintuitive. But but when you look at how people actually, you know, it's one thing going to Dubai, you're probably going to fly. It's another thing going to Modesto or Sacramento, or as you mentioned, Islip or White Plains. Uh, uh, And there's a you know, it's just an area that has been left behind. And the reason it's been left behind is that the airlines appropriately are concentrating on larger planes, uh, longer distances, and so forth. But the reason it's been left behind has to do very, very closely with airline, sorry, airplane economics, the kinds of planes you can fly. And with this uh, coming revolution, and we really are, on the cusp of a revolution. The coming revolution has to do with aircraft propulsion. If you really go back, there's only been three or four revolutions in the last hundred plus years. So there's the Wright brothers started flying. Airlines were born in the 1930s. Jet propulsion, it's hard to believe, is 64 years old in the commercial sense. Of course, it was developed for military purposes well before that. But the advent of the Pan Am 707 was 1958. That's ages ago. Planes have gotten safer planes have gotten faster planes have gotten better but they're still consuming a lot of of fossil fuels and it's still basically the same platform now we're on the cusp of what I would say is the fourth revolution which is the introduction of green flying hybrid electric hydrogen all electric and so forth sustainable aviation fuels there's a lot of movement coming it's going to take a lot of time and we are starting with what's available to the public and to us today which is to convert very well-trusted, highly respected, small passenger aircraft. And now, of course, you guys have announced
0: you're looking at electric at Surf Air.
3: Yes, we are deliberately starting with hybrid electric because it's already proven. It's flying extensively. There has to be some improvement in, in, in battery density and a few other aspects of the technology to make all electric planes that can carry 5, 10, 15, 25 people. That's a little ways off. But what we're doing, with hybrid electric is, first of all, we're introducing a lot of improvement, up to 50% reduction in emissions, up to 25% reduction in overall operating costs. It's a very powerful formula. And the beauty of of hybrid electric is it requires little to no infrastructure changes.
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, We've seen the recent announcement of of United Airlines investing in supersonic aircraft, American putting down a deposit on 20 new planes. But if you look at it a little bit more closely, you realize the planes haven't been built yet. They haven't even finished Figure out what engine's going to power it on a supersonic level, and not to mention the fact they've got to mitigate the sonic boom, which has always been an impediment to flying over land. The Concorde never did. It wasn't allowed to. So the earliest projections I'm seeing is that plane, assuming it's built, it tests well, and it flies, won't be flying commercially before the end of the decade. Something tells me electric planes will beat them to
3: the punch. I would subscribe to that. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about completely different concepts here. Supersonic may or may not have a place in the ecosystem. I think it does, but I think it's very, very rarefied, and it's not a a product for the masses at all. Whereas hybrid electric and all electric small passenger planes, which are the only ones that will work and will work marvelously in the coming few years, that's a game changer, and that's what you guys are investing in. Absolutely, hundred percent. So project this
0: out for me if you can. Here we are, and you know, coming into the fall of 2022. When do you think you know you'll
3: be able to do it? Since you, the technology has already been proven. Well. Well, because we're pursuing a so-called supplemental type certificate, known as an STC, as opposed to an airframe certificate type certificate, it is a it, nothing's ever easy, but it's a lot easier than doing a brand new airframe made of, of advanced materials and 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 so forth. So we are amending part of a proven plane. We are not messing around with the aeronautics or the or, or the or, or any of the dynamics that got the plane certified in the first place and trusted in the second place. We are adding to the propulsion and not taking away anything. So to answer your question, I think we have a very good shot by the end of 2024 to be approved and to move into a commercial deployment in 2025, which is right around the corner. And that means for flights under 700 miles, you can do it. Yeah. I think our sweet spot will be 150 to 500, but that's there. You can do a lot with that over time, the aircraft size will in, in, increase, and uh, so will the range. Wow. Listen, if you take a little pencil, this is my cartography here,
0: and you draw a 500-mile radius, that's a lot of ground to cover for, for
3: airports that may not be well served at all. Well, yes, and we have we have a forecasting, we have a, a, one of the premier airline route forecasters uh, in the world on our team. I'm very honored to to, to work with this individual who is just, you know, uh, salivating at the prospect of having all this data <laughs> and can really come up with reliable forecasts that weren't available in the past. And the other story here is there's a technical story, which is conversion to green flying. There's the resultant effect on the airline economics, a vast improvement of economics. And that's not usually true. Going green usually means higher prices and higher costs. Uh, And thirdly, if you take the tech story, combine it with the airline economics, then you come up with a market story, which is a very large uh, area of white space that is not served adequately by road transport. We do not have rail in this country and never will on uh, on a scale matching Europe or China. Uh, so it is an, a, a staggering opportunity. There's 5,000 uh, public use airports uh, in the United States, and we're not proposing to fly inside cities or landing in parking lots or on top of parking garages. We're proposing to operate within the system that is is, is controlled by the FAA and air traffic control, and you know we're we've got. To The infrastructure, it's right there, and we just have to tap into it with with better planes.
0: My thanks to Fred, to Ann Hood, and to Gary Leff. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to PeterGreenberg.com.
1: The Ion Travel podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music.
3: I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.
4: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast